0: Hello, church family and friends. The sermon title this morning is The Righteous King We All Need. I assure you, I had no idea about the coronation of the king (laughs) yesterday (laughs) until Friday night. The sermon was done at Friday noon. My knowledge of the royals is very, very mere. (laughs) Let me pray, and let's turn to the Lord's Word in 2 Samuel 14. Oh God, you speak and all of creation stops to listen. So we pray for humble hearts this morning to hear your word. Give us hearts that long to hear you speak and long to have our lives and our feelings and our behavior to come into conformity with your word. Not so that you would be pleased with us and save us, but because you've been pleased with Christ and you've saved us through his death and resurrection by faith in what he's done. And so, Holy Spirit, would you lift up Christ for us this morning? Would you help us to see the goodness of your righteous reign and rule and judgments? We pray these things in your name. Amen. The final judgment is, is good news. The final judgment of Jesus is incredibly good news. In fact, I would argue that that's what gets us through significant quitting points in life. The final judgment is an anchor and it is medicine in the face of sin. It means that the wrongs done to us don't vanish into thin air. They don't disappear. But the wrongs that we endure will be judged by Jesus with righteous wrath. The final judgment of Jesus is good news for Tamar. Though horribly treated, she doesn't receive justice. The man who sinfully violated her walks free for two years before being killed. But is dying penalty enough for someone who's done something like Amnon? I'm not sure it is. And what's David's punishment for not wielding the sword of justice that God gave him as king of Israel? It was his job to ensure justice under his rule and reign. And the final judgment, I would say, is good news for us as well. When we're wronged, a longing for justice swells up in our hearts. We all sense that something needs to be done in the face of that wrong. Even if you don't believe that God exists, you still feel this drive for justice. We feel it in mundane moments when we're cut off in traffic. We feel it when we're betrayed at work. We feel it when classmates don't pull their weight on the big final project or when a coach shows favoritism or when parents dish out consequences without carefully listening to the facts or when we're treated shamefully or abandoned or lied to or hurt and nothing seems to be done about it how do you survive the intense frustration of justice that's left undone and unfinished and unresolved At one time, it could be said of David that he reigned over all Israel and that he administered justice and equity to all his people. That was in 2 Samuel 8.15. But by this point in David's life, David is struggling significantly to guide and to correct and to ensure justice in his own family. And the sins are piling up. David comes off in these last few chapters as anchorless. His game plan is, unclear. He seems passive and indecisive in the pursuit of justice. And this should push us past David and every human authority to Jesus. And that's not a cheap gospel pivot. The people in authority over us won't always get it right. And neither will we when we have some measure of authority to pursue justice. And that's why Tamar, And all who experience imperfect applications of justice in this life must look to God's King. We must anticipate the righteous judgments of God's King. Some of those judgments will come in this life. But most of them may wait for the final judgment. But let's let the promises of Jesus' judgment serve as an anchor and as medicine while we wait. Let's let the promise of his righteous judgment relieve the consuming ache in your soul for revenge. And where you have authority, may you use it to do what you know Jesus would do, bringing his kingdom on earth now. So this week we're gonna walk through the entire story of 2 Samuel 14, and then I want us to think about application in two directions. Applications for when we have some measure of authority, and applications for when we're under imperfect authority and not receiving perfect justice. So let's begin with the story. Five scenes. The first one is verses one through three, the plan. And before we dig into chapter 14, verses 37 to 39 of chapter 13 set the context for where we find ourselves. Absalom has been in Geshur for three years. He's fled there to his maternal grandfather for protection from David. Why does he need protection? Because Absalom has murdered his half-brother Amnon who violated Absalom's sister Tamar. And now look at verses one through three of 2 Samuel 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent it to Koah. It's about 14 miles south of Jerusalem and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab is David's general. He's also an extended family member. We're not going to review everything that we've learned about Joab through this series, But Joab is a person who gets things done, sometimes ruthlessly gets things done. Like the revenge he exacts on Saul's general, Abner, in the back alley under a banner of truce, Joab thrusts a knife into Abner's belly and Abner was no more. This is the kind of person that Joab is. And he realizes that the king's heart is preoccupied with David. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's longing for David, like he's, he just can't wait for David to come home, but he's conflicted. He's preoccupied. He can't stop thinking about his son Absalom, who's in exile now for three years. Now, David's heart is in knots because when his son Amnon was murdered by his son Absalom, David was furious David's furious, let me say that again. When Amnon sinned against David's daughter Tamar, David is furious. Yet David doesn't act. David becomes confoundingly and unbelievably passive in light of what's happened to his daughter. As king, he should have carried out a punishment, the punishment that Amnon deserved for his wickedness. And according to Deuteronomy 22, The just penalty for Amnon's sin was death. But for two years, Amnon walks free and he enjoys life as the heir apparent to the throne of Israel while Tamar is left desolate. David could have done so much to restore her, but there's no restoration. There's no justice for Tamar. So Absalom quietly plots revenge in the shadows. And two years later, He murders Amnon in cold blood. Now, Amnon is the firstborn son of David and heir to the throne. Absalom, the secondborn son of David, now conveniently becomes heir to the throne. And after the revenge, David seems to be somewhat comforted by Amnon's death. That's chapter 13, verse 39. He's comforted, but he won't restore Absalom. Instead, he lets Absalom go to exile for three years. And Joab, understanding the king's preoccupation with this, devises a plan from the prophet Nathan's book a few chapters earlier. He summons a wise woman from Tekoa and he gives her a fictional story to tell the king. And here's the parable, verses four through 11. "'When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, "'she fell on her face to the ground "'and paid homage and said, "'Save me, O king.' "'And the king said to her, "'What's your trouble?' and she answered alas i'm a widow my husband is dead and your servant my husband is dead alas i'm a widow my husband is dead and your servant had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field there was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him and now the whole clan has risen against your servant and they say give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed And so they would destroy the air also, and thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Her story is compelling. Her husband is dead. Her two sons quarrel in a field. One son kills the other son. And now her extended family clan wants the life of the surviving son. And notice that she doesn't ask David to intervene because of some circumstance in the killing. She's not claiming that her surviving son is somehow innocent. Instead, she says the reason she wants David to intervene is because this is her final heir. This is the last coal she has to burn in the fire. This is her future provision. Without this son, her family would end. Look at verse 8. The king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and to my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. David responds generally and vaguely. Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. But the woman isn't satisfied with his vague answer. And she says, if you're worried about how people will respond to your order, then let the guilt be on me and my father's house. Let your throne be guiltless so David responds in verse 10, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. More vagueness. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood will kill no more and my son not be destroyed. She wants him to swear an oath. She wants to pin him to the wall so that when she reveals the point of this parable, David is stuck. And David says at the end of verse 11, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son will fall to the ground. Now, here's the point of the parable, beginning in verse 12. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. And David said, speak. And the woman said, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, The king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. The Tekoa woman points her finger at King David and confronts him. She's not making the case that Absalom is innocent, just like she's not making the case that her fictional son is innocent. Rather, she's saying, This is the future of Israel. This is the heir now to the throne of Israel. He's not innocent, but bring him home. Now, the question of whether Joab and the Tekoa woman are actually providing wise counsel will be revealed next week. But her proverb in verse 14 is confusing but helpful. Here's what she says. We must all die. We are like water spilled in the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life and God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. I struggled with this proverb for a long time, and here's my best guess at what's being said here. Amnon is like water that's been spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Amnon's dead. David, there's nothing else you can do about Amnon's death. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one, Absalom, will not remain an outcast. And we'll come back to that in a minute because it's really important to the verse, to the chapter. God will not take away life and God will devise means so that the banished one, the rebel, the sinner will not remain an outcast, will not remain in exile. Now in verses 15 through 17 The woman from Tekoa returns to her own fictional story where she lands the plane. David guesses what the woman is up to. Look at verse 18. The king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman said, The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was Joab who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are done on the earth. Now, that's the point of the parable that she tells. Now, here's the pardon in verses 21 through 24. 21. Then the king said to Joab, "'Behold, now I grant this. "'Go bring the young man Absalom.' "'And Joab fell on his face to the ground "'and paid homage and blessed the king. "'And Joab said, "'Today your servant knows that I have found favor "'in your sight, my lord the king.'" in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab rose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come <clears throat> into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This is sort of a pardon. David's ready for Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but Absalom's going to stay in his own residence. He's not going to see the king. He's not going to come into the king's presence. He should expect no invitations to family birthday parties or holidays. He's staying there. David is staying here. Now, what could this mean for his prospects to be the next king of Israel? And so we find a protest in verses 25 through 33. Now, in all Israel... There was no one to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair on his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. And there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a beautiful woman like her aunt. No one in Israel is as handsome and unblemished as David's son, Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, no one matches Absalom in appearance. And then there was his hair. (laughs) Personally, I can't imagine why a full head of hair was so impressive. (laughs) But it was. And he used to cut it every year. And not only was Absalom handsome, but his family was growing. Three boys who appeared to die young, based on what we learned later, and a daughter named after Absalom's sister, Tamar. Absalom seems like the perfect son, at least externally. But veterans of this series through David's life will notice a parallel between Absalom and David's predecessor, King Saul. In 1 Samuel 9, Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul, From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's an odd description of a handsome man. It just feels like an oddly long (laughs) giraffe-like neck. But Saul's outward appearance is attractive and it's noticeable. And yet what's important to the Lord is not the outward appearance, but the position of the heart. And that's what God reveals to the prophet Samuel when he sends him to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel. First Samuel sixteen seven, God says, don't look on his appearance, this is David's older brother, or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And if it's not evident already, it will become abundantly clear next week that Absalom's heart will be found desperately wanted, wanting. And so is David's hands-off approach to fathering his sons. Look at verse 28. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. And then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there, go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Absalom is tired of being isolated from the king. It's been two years and Joab doesn't answer Absalom's request. Joab, though he brought him back from Geshur, is still loyal to the king. And so Joab arose in verse 31 and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. I think it's a reasonable request. David leaves Absalom in no man's land. He is not confronting him about his wrongdoing. Neither is he extending mercy to him. And so Absalom sits in Jerusalem away from the king, experiencing the shame of not being invited as the heir apparent to anything in the king's presence. And then verse 33. Joab went to the king and told him, and David summoned Absalom. And so he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. We'll see next week, that this reconciliation is half-hearted at best. It's possible there's more information or that, that more transpired than what's recorded for us. But what we have here seems very slight. There's no confrontation of the truth. And without confronting the reality of the situation, real reconciliation is not possible. We have to talk about what's happened. David and Absalom have a lot they need to hash out and instead... There's a bowing to the ground. There's a kissing of the head. And there is so-called reconciliation, which last week we'll see is found wanting. David has gone through the motions of bringing the banished rebel son back home. But he's not really brought back home. Now, the question for us is how do we apply this story? Why is this here? What was Israel intended to learn from this? And what are we intended to learn from this? So here's two directions of application. First, when we're in a position of authority. Second Samuel 8.15, happening well before our story this morning, we read that David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is how David once reigned. He was a good king. He brought justice to his people. He ensured justice and equity for all the Israelites. When we have some sphere of authority and influence, at home, at work, at school, at church, in the community, in the government, we have a job to do. We provide a space underneath our leadership and authority where there is sensible order where there is fairness and equity, when there is an opportunity for the joyful flourishing of those who come under that authority. And if we're Christians, then this leadership should be guided by the Bible and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The idea is that we let Jesus govern that space where we have some delegated authority from him so that our family, our church, our workplace, our school, kids, even your pets, they should live in a place where Jesus reigns. We make decisions consistent with God's word, the Bible. We act and think and feel in ways that are controlled by God's spirit. We think of our leadership as a service to those whom we lead. And that should eliminate moral passivity And indecision. Why? Because we lean in to address the wrongs that are done, even when it's hard, even when we risk the relationship, because we are acting on Jesus' behalf. That becomes the guiding force for what we're doing. What would God do in this situation? How do we bring the kingdom now? In 1 Kings chapter 1, happening after our passage, David has died. Solomon is to become king, but David's son, Adonijah, fights for the throne. And here's the commentary in 1 Kings 1, verse 6. His father, that's David, had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking him, Why have you done thus and so? This is an explanation for how Adonijah gets to where he is, attempting to steal the throne from David's choice of Solomon. He gets to this place, we're told, because his father won't confront his sin. Because David never says, Adonijah, what you've done is wrong. You have grieved God and you've wounded others. You've got to turn from your sin and embrace the happiness of conforming to God's word. That's what David should have said, something like that. But David doesn't challenge Adonijah, not just once. The overriding commentary and summary of David's fathering is that he did not confront. He never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking him, why have you done thus and so? David doesn't challenge Amnon. David doesn't challenge Absalom, at least not directly. What a slide toward passivity from what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 8 about David administering justice and equity in all of Israel. So, what's changed for David? David's probably lost his moral courage. Who am I to confront my son's sins when I've sinned so severely? How can I stand to challenge Amnon's sexual sin when Bathsheba is counted as one of my wives? How can I rise to oppose Absalom's murderous revenge when Uriah the Hittite lies buried in a battlefield? David's sins are glaringly obvious and public. And we can empathize, I think, with how difficult and how much discomfort taking a moral stand would have been for him. But David must do it anyway, and so must you and I. But the question is, why can't he? Why can't David take a moral stand? Because he hasn't embraced God's astounding mercy. David genuinely repents famously in Psalm 51, but David is not able to experience God's astounding mercy. David hasn't fully internalized that God has brought the banished one home from exile, that God has brought his son home. He can't experience that. He's not experiencing it in a functional way in his heart. Here's Puritan Richard Sibbs. We must overcome the unbelief of our hearts We must overcome the unbelief of our hearts. How? By yielding to the promise of pardon. We must yield to the promise of pardon. We who are sinners, who understand the depth of our sin, and who come pleading to the Lord for mercy, we have to yield our hearts to his promise of pardon. We have to view ourselves as the banished one, the rebel being brought home from exile. David, like each one of us, has been offered a promise of pardon for our sin and it's ours to embrace. But our hearts struggle to receive his mercy, to yield to it because it's hard to believe that such a pardon actually exists. It's hard to believe that God could actually pardon and bring me home after what I've done. But God is not like us. His ways are different than our ways. Our God's love is steadfast and long-suffering. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may, that the Lord may have compassion on him, the wicked one who longs to forsake his way. Return to God for he will abundantly pardon. When David genuinely turns from his sins and embraces God's mercy, when he does that in a real way, then he's able to turn in humility towards others and call them to follow the same path through repentance into pardon that David has traveled. He's not standing in moral superiority, he's speaking from experience when he's sinned grievously, when he's cried out to the Lord for mercy and when he's received it, he can stand in humility and call the people around him to that same journey through repentance into pardon. So have you internalized the fact that God longs to bring the banished one home again? That God longs for the one in exile to be brought home? that God longs for the sinner covered in the filth and stench of our sin to come home to him. And he won't bring us home reluctantly. He won't leave us isolated in another room. There's no silent treatment from this abundantly merciful God. He sees us from a distance and he runs to us and he embraces us and he kisses us and he will rejoice and throw a party for us. This son or daughter of mine was lost and now he's home. Now he's been found. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, are declared righteous by his grace as a gift. Accessed through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how we are justified by his grace as a gift. It's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfaction, a propitiation by his blood. How do we receive this? How do we access this? By yielding our heart to his promise of pardon, by faith trusting him at his word that when we come with genuine sorrow that he will abundantly pardon it's Romans 3:23 we've all fallen will you come home this morning and now when we're under authority No matter how closely conformed leaders are to God's heart and God's word, they'll make mistakes. They will occasionally sin. They'll sin against us. From time to time, they'll be passive, where they should be assertive, or they'll be unfair, or they'll over-respond going further than justice requires, or they will refuse to show mercy. That's why we must look past David and look above every human source of authority to the king that God promises us. Look above every human source of authority to Jesus. Parents or husbands, elders or bosses, judges or law enforcement, presidents or governors, teachers or coaches. Sometimes those in authority can't see they won't see what they need to see because they can't be everywhere sometimes those in authority over us won't understand the situation correctly because they don't know everything sometimes those in authority over us will be afraid to confront afraid to bring justice because they are not all powerful and therefore subject to fear And sometimes those in authority will just get it wrong because they are sinners like us. They are human beings who struggle with sin in this broken world. But while leaders like David, good leaders like David, will sometimes fail us, Tamar and all who have endured imperfect justice in this world, behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This righteous branch that grows out of David, this future descendant of David, will reign as king and he will deal wisely and will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jesus will not overlook wrongs done. The wrongs done to you will not vanish into thin air. They won't. Jesus will respond to them with measured, righteous fury and wrath toward all sin, Toward every sin. Neither will Jesus exact a judgment that is too severe. He will deal wisely as the situation and sin requires. He will execute justice and righteousness. It was Jeremiah 23 before. Here's Isaiah 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The final judgment of God in Christ is good news. It's good news as we process the pain and the unfinished business of this life. So try not to process the imperfect justice that you've received in isolation from the final judgment. Don't do it. Don't try to process unresolved, unfinished business in isolation from the final judgment. Try not to rehearse the unaddressed injustices that you've faced without anchoring your soul to the righteous judge who says in John 5, 27, of himself, and the Father has given him, that is Jesus talking about himself, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, all will stand in judgment before the Son of Man. All who are in the tombs and all who are living, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is not telling us to get to work and to earn our salvation. He is saying that good deeds are evidence of our new life in Christ. And those who bear those good deeds, bear the fruit of repentance and life, will receive the resurrection of life. The final judgment is an anchor to us when perfect justice doesn't seem possible in this life. It's an anchor. It holds us. Some tension can be relieved. We worship a king whose righteous judgments will rain down like fire. But the final judgment is also medicine. It can provide to us the comforting balm that we need in a world where senseless evil seems normal. It's in the final judgment where we can soothe the driving desire for revenge, trusting that Christ will make all things right. And you can find relief not just in the future, but you can begin to experience that relief now, trusting that it's coming. As I step back and look at my own life, as I look at the life of our church family, as I look at the world that we're living in, it is clear that we need a righteous king. Our lives are a shipwreck of our own sin and the sin that's done by others. We need a righteous king who will make it all right who can sort out what we cannot in our own strength and wisdom, who will clean up our brokenness and all the brokenness of the world around us, a king who will deliver mercy for sinners and justice for sufferers. Anticipate the righteous judgments of God's king. Lord Jesus, we rejoice at your righteous judgments. We rejoice that you know all, see all, that you are powerful enough to do all that your heart desires. And we thank you for the good news of final judgment. And we thank you that for all who are found in you, all who are trusting you, you absorb the full weight of God's wrath in yourself so that we stand free and clear and alive forevermore. And if there are those here who have not yet found their life in you. I pray that you would cause them, Holy Spirit, to feel the weight of their own sin and the terror of standing before you without the sacrifice of Christ in their place. Would you hold out to them, Holy Spirit, the astounding mercy of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.